So every once in a while, I'll get an email I'll pop into my inbox, and it's a surprise email. It's from a friend of mine that I don't hear from very often. Um, but, and so when he does email, I don't necessarily know what he's going to say, and, and sometimes the subject line doesn't even give me an indication. But I do know, I do know every time that I receive that email, even though I don't know exactly what the content of the, of the, of the body of that email will be, I know what I will see at the bottom. Underneath his signature, so underneath your name, and he's got a contact information for his business, will always be the psalm that we get to look at today. Psalm 118, where it says, The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. What a neat psalm. What a neat thing to have as your own signature. And I don't know, I've never really even asked my friend why he has that as his signature verse on every email that he sends out. I I have my suspicions. He's a big history buff, and and one of the guys that he likes to study is a guy by the name of Martin Luther, a Christian reformer who lived 500 years ago, and this was Luther's favorite psalm. Uh, In fact, he adopted it and said, hey, I'm going to call this my psalm. But he also goes on to say, don't worry, I'll share. If you want it to make it your psalm, you can have it too. But, but it was so meaningful to Luther, uh, especially when he was holed up in a, in a castle, Coburg Castle, uh, under protection. And it was also, it wasn't just that he was, had a, a threat to his life as he was in that castle. Uh, he talks about, he was, those are some dark days for Luther, fighting some depression, fighting some anxiety. Um, uh, just dark, like I said, dark days. And he carved this, this passage into the wall in his study. And he would look at that to give him, to give him comfort. Comfort uh, for the future. Comfort to face the future. And when you really think about it, the resurrection and the promise of eternal life is the source of comfort for all of us to face the future. I mean, can you, you imagine... You know what, what life would be like if you didn't have that, that promise hanging out there in the future. That, that, that's why when we have our starting point, which we just started last week, that's why the resurrection was, is the first lesson that we always have for starting point. It's the foundation of our faith. It's also why it's the, the, the parting thought when we have our confessions of faith, when we use our creeds. You know, what's the last line of the Apostles' Creed? So the third article, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You know, to have that as your parting thought, Nicene Creed, same thing. We look forward to the resurrection of the body and the life of the world to come. Like I said, that, that comfort, that that, that that promise of eternal life, the comfort of the resurrection of the body is is really the source of comfort for facing anything in the future. I mean, can you imagine? Imagine what your life would be like if there was no resurrection. You know, I I often ask hypothetical questions in a sermon, and I don't give you time to think about it, and so I'll just pause. And uh, imagine what your life would be like for a moment if there was nothing after this life. No resurrection, no heaven, no eternal life. If that was the case, 
You know, what would your life be like? For one, I don't think you'd be here. Why would you be? There'd be no point. And even if you are here and you're doubting or questioning whether or not there is an afterlife or what that afterlife all entails, you're still here because you're curious about it. And so whether you are confident or comforted by the resurrection or whether you're curious about it, you're here uh, for the same reason. That is, your, you are, you're looking forward to the future. And the resurrection points you there. And yet the resurrection and the promise of eternal life is not just this, this carrot that God dangles in front of us to lead us to go forward. It's not just there to, to serve as, as comfort for the future. The, the promise of the eternal life and the resurrection also really serves and gives us confidence to face the present. You know, and, and what do I mean by that? that? That we can have confidence to face the present based on, on the resurrection. Well, it's kind of where you have to employ the greater to lesser argument. You know what I mean by that? If, if I'll give you an example. So if I would have said to Liam or to Isabel today and said, okay, I'm going to make you jump six feet. And they can do, and they can jump six feet. And then I say, oh, okay, now do you think you can jump three feet? Of course. If they showed me that they can jump six feet, they're going to be able to handle three feet. Or if, if you can handle calculus, you can handle first grade math, right? And, and so uh, the, 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 what we call that the greater to lesser argument. If you can do the big thing, you can take care of the small thing. Well, when you think about what are the enemies, what are the challenges that you and I face in life, in the present life? And I know there's lots of things maybe vying to be that top spot. We think, well, maybe, maybe sin is the biggest enemy in our life. And it, yeah, it's up there. And yet when you think about it, what happens is that the Holy Spirit is able to create faith in our hearts. And not only is he able to create faith in our hearts, he plants that new self then which is able, which able, motivated uh, by the gospel to choose to live a life, to, to choose to be able not to sin once in a while. And so sin maybe isn't the greatest enemy. It's a big enemy, but it's not the greatest enemy. Or maybe you say, well, maybe the greatest enemy is the devil. Again, the devil's up there. But you look at what Scripture says. In fact, it points to the Bible itself. It says this is a, the sword of the Spirit. And, and as we're equipped with the sword, we can... We can fend off the devil and we can send him packing. And so he's a great enemy, but he's not the greatest enemy. You know, you know what the Bible says is our greatest enemy? The one that looms large standing in front of us, the last enemy, the Bible says, to be defeated is death. That's something that we still all, you know, think about the prospect of. Physical death, eternal death. But then what does it say here? It says here in this beautiful psalm, this masterpiece of a psalm, I will not die. I will not die but live. And because of Jesus and what he did from that Easter, that means it's the death of death, right? That our greatest enemy has been taken down. And if, and if Jesus has taken down our greatest enemy... Well, then that assures us that all those other lesser enemies, you pick your lesser enemy, that you face on a daily basis, that also has been taken care of. 
because the greatest enemy of death has been taken care of, you could say, well, okay, the lesser enemy of, of loneliness stands conquered. Stands conquered by a God who says, hey, I'm never going to leave you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'll be with you always. If Jesus has, has conquered death, the greatest enemies, that means the lesser enemy of guilt can't bother you. It stands conquered because of a God who, who promises to you and says to you, hey, you're forgiven. The, the, if the greater enemy of death, I will not die. If, if the greater enemy of death has been conquered, that means the lesser enemy of, of temptation Stands conquered as God promises in his word, hey, I'll strengthen you and uphold you so that you can stand up underneath temptation and provide a way out for you. Whatever your, your lesser enemy, doesn't mean they're small, but whatever your lesser enemy is, you can have that confidence today to face those enemies because Christ has conquered the greater enemy, which is summarized in this phrase, I will not die but live. And I wonder if it's that phrase and, and, and that promise, the confidence to face the present, that also was a great comfort and confidence builder for Jesus on the night before he died. We call that night Monday, Thursday, or sometimes Holy Thursday. Uh, and, and if I were to ask you, well, what happened on Monday, Thursday, I would, I would probably guess you would give me at least two things. Oh, that's when Holy Communion started. Right, the Last Supper, where Jesus was there in, in the upper room and he instituted what we now know as Holy Communion. Or you maybe would tell me what happens later on that night in Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus is, is, is praying there with, with drops of blood. Uh, it seems like that he is sweating and, and, and then he is arrested. But there's another little detail of what happened on Monday, Thursday that only the Gospel of Mark shares with us. That after Jesus introduced Holy Communion to his disciples and before he headed out on the path to Gethsemane, uh, the Gospel of Mark gives us this little detail and it says, after they had sung a hymn, he went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, to be fair, to be totally transparent, the Gospel writer Mark does not tell us what hymn they sang. However, we do know what psalms, what hymns, Old Testament believers sang whenever they got together for the Passover. Before they would eat the meal, they would sing Psalm 113 and Psalm 114. After the meal, they would always sing Psalm 116 through Psalm 118. So if Jesus and his disciples were true to form, that would mean that they would have sung this hymn. This would have been the last words, the last melody that Jesus would have sung with his disciples before he goes to offer his life to die. And you know how the last song that you sing or the last song that you hear on the radio, that just kind of sticks with you. Imagine, you know. Imagine the confidence that Jesus could have had as this melody of I will not button die but live, as that lyric is, is rolling through his brain and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and the devil is whispering in his ears, you don't have to go through. Imagine the confidence that, that, that this lyric would have given to Jesus as it's rolling through his brain, as, he, as he's looking and staring at that cup of, of wrath that his father had poured out for him. Imagine the confidence that Jesus would have gleaned from this lyric, I will not die but live, 
as he would have seen his, his disciples desert him. You know, it, it's not a stretch. It's not a stretch to think that this truth, this lyric, this psalm was what fueled Jesus to carry out his Father's will, to live a life to glorify his dad. And you could say the same thing for us. It's this truth of the resurrection. It's not just this promise of the future, of comfort in the future. It's really confidence and the fuel for us to face the present and to live for him. And that's really how the psalmist puts it, doesn't he? I mean, you look at here, he says, immediately after, he gets those assuring words, I will not die but live and will proclaim. You know, that and just comes right away. I'm not going to die. I'm going to live. Well, I can't just sit idly by and, and do nothing now. There's an automatic response when God gives us that tremendous gift. I and I will proclaim what the Lord has done. I don't, I don't think it's a surprise. I don't think it's a coincidence that verses 16 and 17 are the middle verses, if you count by words, and oftentimes the Psalms will put the, the main thought in the smack dab middle. Psalm 16, or verses 16 and 17 are the middle verses of the middle chapter of the whole Bible. Psalm 118 is smack dab in the middle if you count the chapters of the Bible. I mean, this is really a summary of what the Bible's all about, right? That I won't die. And I will live. And so as a result, I will proclaim what the Lord has done. Again, it, you know, that this is fuel. This is fuel for us to live for God now. And I, and I love, I love the, even the choice of words that the psalmist uses. I will proclaim uh, what the word or what the Lord has done. Uh, that word in its original connotation is a, it has a mathematical connotation to it. In fact, some translations maybe even translate it that way. They, they translate it, I will recount what the Lord has done. That, that's literally what this word means, to count. And, and we kind of do that in English, too. If you're thinking everything that God has done for you, someone might say, hey, why don't you sit down and count your blessings, right? Count your blessings. And if you haven't ever done that, that'd be a great exercise for you to do today. And not just to do it mentally, but actually get out a piece of paper, put blessings at the top, and, and start listing all of your blessings. And you'd write, you know, life. And you maybe write parents, loving parents, Christian parents, maybe a Christian school, maybe you'd say a spouse or kids or, or health or sunny day or, or whatever it is. And you'd write all these things. What, what's, what's happening? As you're counting your blessings, you are really proclaiming to yourself, wow, this is what the Lord has done. The Lord has done some mighty things. And, and as you are proclaiming that to yourself, you are also, maybe subliminally, as, as you live with that attitude, you are then proclaiming it to other people as well. But then maybe the question begins, well, what if my sheet stays blank? What if I can't think of any blessings that God has given to me? 
Or what if my list has more question marks than it does exclamation points? You know, is God going to do this for me? Always, this is what the Lord has done for me. Or what if I have a backside to that sheet that says challenges? And challenges are far more numerous than the blessings. And I think that happens once in a while. We don't always see the blessings in our life. We don't always count the blessings in our life. We don't remember the blessings in our life. And when that happens, I'd encourage you to look back to this psalm. But now maybe instead of looking at the smack dab middle, which tells you everything, hey, the Lord has done amazing things, I will not die but live. Look at the bookends. Some of you brought your Bibles today. You have your Bible open. Can I put you on the spot? Can you read verse 1 of Psalm 118, if you have it open to that page? Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. All right. Just a, that sounds familiar to us, doesn't it? Depending on which Bible translation you have, it's give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His loving kindness or his love is everlasting or endures forever. And if you were to flip to the last verse, guess what you would see? Exact same thing. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. What's the point? Is that sometimes instead of, especially if we have trouble seeing the, the actions of God in our life, the activity of God in our life, Maybe we just need to step back and see the adjectives and look at who God is. If we don't see the gifts in his life, maybe we just need to step back and just look at the giver himself. What does it say here? He is good. He is loving. Those are not small words to describe our God. And, you know, I, I told you Luther loved this psalm, and he wrote a huge, long commentary on this psalm. And, you know, I, I like what he said. He, he said, you must not read these words, good and love, with dull indifference. No, you must bear in mind that these are vibrant, significant, and meaningful words. You know, you maybe know those words as the back half of what we call the common table prayer. I would pray that those words aren't common to you anymore. But that we just see and marvel that we have a good God. What does that mean? We have a loving God. What does that mean? That, that is that expresses and, and emphasizes that God is, is good. Not, don't think of a human kind of goodness, but that, that he is, has this goodness that, that is just from the bottom of his heart. And he wants to continually do good to you because that's his essence. That's who he is. These words express and, and emphasize that God is loving, not because of anything you've done, but because that's his essence. He just is loving to you. And so if the risen 
the, the, the living Lord, the risen Lord, who is living and who promises to you that you will live forever, is the one who loves you forever. What does that mean for you today? Well, it means he loves you right now. And so that gives you confidence, that gives you comfort, not just in the future, but for every day of your life and for any, every enemy that you might be facing. That is his signature that he shares with you in his, his email to you. Amen.